it's time to read the Des Moines Register for today. This is Tuesday, November 28th. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of Iowans with a print disability. I'm Deanna Snyder, and my partner at the microphone for the next 90 minutes is Judith Linden. For the first hour, we'll cover local and national news from the Des Moines Register and USA Today. Our second hour starts with birthdays and obituaries, followed by opinions, sports, and lifestyle news. We'll wrap up our broadcast with Dear Abby. Support for today's reading comes from the Des Moines Register and donations from individuals and listeners like you. Learn how you can keep the volunteer voices of Iris going strong at iowa-reading-no, no, no, iowa-radio-reading-.org, you know. Now let's take a look at the weather and headlines from today's Des Moines Register. Today, high of 36 with a low of 26, partly sunny, winds from the south, 7 to 14 miles per hour, clear tonight. Winds from the southwest, 6 to 12 miles per hour. And tomorrow will be a high of 50 and a low of 31, so it's getting better, folks. And let's see, our normal high and low, normally it's 43 high and 26 low. So we're just a little colder today than we want to be. Sunrise today was at 7.18 a.m., Sunset will be at 4.47 p.m. And let's see, what else do you need to know? Headlines. Iowa is near last place on nursing home inspectors. And Des Moines' DZ makes a winner out of a Shark Tank loser. Unity Point Health has begun demolition on a couple of buildings near downtown. And John's Grocery in Iowa City is an anchor in a changing landscape. It's celebrating 75 years. And Planned Parenthood workers to picket as contract talks falter. And so, with our first article, are you ready? Here's Judith. Thank you, Deanna. On the front page of the day's Des Moines Register, the story, Gaza ceasefire extended for two days and talks aim at new release of hostages and prisoners. And there's a wonderful photo accompanying this story. It uh, shows uh, a man, his name is Avihai Brodetz. He is hugging his three children, Araya, Ofri, and Yuval, on Sunday in uh, Petka Tivka, Tiv Tikva, Israel after their release by Hamas militants, and they are all snuggled up very close against him. And here is a story from USA Today by John Bacon. A four-day truce that fueled the release of scores of hostages and prisoners and brought relative calm to the war-devastated Gaza Strip will be extended two more days, Hamas and Qatar's foreign ministry said Monday. The truce had been scheduled to end Monday, but Israeli and Palestinian leaders had expressed support for extending the truce and freeing more militant-held hostages and Israeli-held prisoners. Israel has offered to extend the ceasefire by one day for every 10 additional hostages released. 
The state of Qatar announces, as part of the ongoing mediation, an agreement has been reached to extend the humanitarian truce for an additional two days in the Gaza Strip. The Qatar foreign ministry said in a social media post, Israel did not immediately confirm the deal, but Hamas said in a social media post it had agreed with Qatar and Egypt to extend the temporary humanitarian truce. A top aide to Egyptian President Abdel Fattah el-Sisi said the talks were aimed at securing a two-day extension that would see 10 Israeli hostages and 30 Palestinian prisoners released Tuesday and Wednesday. The aide, Adisha Rishwan, also said 11 his Israeli hostages will be released later Monday, the Times of Israel reported. We welcome the announcement, National Security Council spokesman John Kirby said of the extended pause. We would, of course, hope to see the pause extended further. President Joe Biden celebrated the release Sunday of the first American to be freed by Hamas as part of the temporary ceasefire agreement, Avigel Eden, who turned four on Friday while in captivity. Biden said the little girl whose parents were gunned down by Hamas militants, is currently in Israel and that she has been through a terrible trauma. Kirby said the administration believes eight or nine Americans are still being held hostage, but the United States does not have firm information on all of them. He said he was hopeful some of them would be released during the extended truce. Almost 60 women and children held hostage have been released since Friday, along with scores of women and teen Palestinians from Israeli prisons. An estimated 240 people were taken hostage by militants in the October 7 raid into Israel, and more than 1,200 people were killed, according to Israeli authorities. Another 77 Israeli soldiers have died in the subsequent military operation in Gaza. The Gaza Health Ministry says more than 13,000 Palestinians have been killed in the fighting. White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan told NBC News Meet the Press on Sunday that efforts to free hostages were uh, being held by other groups in Gaza were ongoing. <clears throat> Um, Sullivan went on to say, we also are aware that it is not just Hamas holding hostages. Palestinian Islamic Jihad, another terrorist group that participated in the brutal massacre on October 7, is holding some. And other groups who are not directly affiliated but have loose connections to Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad are also holding hostages. United Nations experts on arbitrary executions, torture, and other cruel, inhumane, or degrading treatment called Monday for a thorough and impartial investigations into crimes allegedly committed by Hamas and Israel in the war. Also, representatives of European Union members and Middle Eastern and North African countries gathered Monday in Barcelona, Spain, to discuss diplomatic efforts to stop the war. The family of hostages released by Hamas say their loved ones survived difficult conditions for the seven weeks in captivity. Mirav Raviv, whose three relatives were released by Hamas on Friday, said they had been fed irregularly and had eaten mainly rice and bread. She said her cousin and aunt, Karen and Ruth Munder, had each lost around 15 pounds. Raviv said she had heard from her freed family members that they had slept on rows of chairs pushed together in a room, and they sometimes had to wait hours before using the bathroom. Yosheved Lipschitz, 
85, said she was held in a web of tunnels by captors who told her they believe in the Quran and would not hurt us. She said she and other hostages received medical care and were given one meal a day of cheese, cucumber, and pita, the same meal her captors ate. In other developments, armed assailants seized and later let go of a tanker linked to Israel off the coast of Yemen on Sunday before being apprehended by the U.S. Navy, officials said. Two ballistic missiles fired from Houthi-controlled Yemen then landed near a U.S. warship aiding the tanker in the Gulf of Aden, raising the stakes amid a series of ship attacks linked to the Israel-Hamas war. The United States military's Central Command said in a statement early Monday that its forces and allies, including the Arleigh Burke-class destroyer USS Mason, responded to the seizure and demanded the armed assailants release the Liberian flag tanker Central Park. Elon Musk joined Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and Israeli President Isaac Herzog for a tour of Kafar Azah Kibbutz, where dozens of residents were killed in the militant attack October 7. And the billionaire Tesla CEO said he was troubled by video and photos Netanyahu showed him of children being killed by the militants. Thank you, Judith. Iowa is near last place on nursing home inspectors. This is from Clark Kaufman of the Iowa Capital Dispatch. A federal report suggests Iowa has one of the nation's worst ratios of nursing home inspectors to care facilities and that the state's use of private contractors to inspect homes is extraordinarily costly to taxpayers. The report, published earlier this year by the majority staff of the U.S. Senate Special Committee on Aging, highlights some of the issues Iowa regulators have acknowledged with regard to nursing home oversight. One of the Iowa homes that recently caught the attention of regulators is the Pine Acres Rehabilitation and Care Center in West Des Moines. This past July, state officials visited the home to conduct an inspection, but not before the home had racked up 13 complaints, the oldest of which dated back 109 days to March 3rd. Over the next several weeks, an additional 12 complaints were filed against the home, and a second inspection took place. Eventually, all of the 25 complaints were substantiated by inspectors, and Pine Acres was cited for 62 regulatory violations, some of which pertained to neglect that allegedly resulted in the amputation of a resident's leg. State and federal records show the timeliness of Iowa's response to complaints has been an issue for years, predating the outbreak of COVID-19 in early 2020, and then growing worse. In some cases, Iowans have died or suffered serious injuries in care facilities where complaints were pending but had not yet been investigated by the state. Data from the Iowa Department of Inspections, Appeals, and Licensing, which handles complaints against nursing homes, shows the agency has made progress catching up on complaints in part by paying outside contractors to handle some of the inspections. However, the Senate staff report, based largely on fiscal year 2022 data, found that Iowa ranks 49th in the nation in terms of its ratio of inspectors to care facilities and that the use of contractors is expensive and risky. Senate staff report states, inspection delays endanger nursing home residents. A growing number of states have turned to inspectors employed by private companies to bridge the gaps. 
costly contractual arrangements worth millions of dollars that should be subject to additional scrutiny from federal regulators, watchdogs, and the press. When asked about the report, the Iowa Department of Inspections, Appeals, and Licensing said it employs 46 long-term care inspectors and, quote, is in the top eight states in the country, unquote, with regard to inspector positions that are filled and not left vacant. The agency acknowledged that it contracts with others on behalf of the federal government to complete inspections, adding that it has worked closely with the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, as well as the U.S. Senate Special Committee on Aging, on ways to ensure resident safety in long-term care facilities. John Hale, a consultant who advocates for Iowa seniors, said the federal report should be of great concern to Iowans with family members in nursing homes. He went on to say, An analysis of the data shows that the department is significantly understaffed, deals with the understaffing by contracting out inspection functions to private companies, and ends up paying more to get less, he said. The legislature's oversight committee should be, but aren't, routinely meeting with the Department of Inspections, Appeals and Licensing, and other state agencies to ensure that they are giving taxpayers their money's worth. Their failure to do so is appalling. Among the report's specific findings are these details. In 2022, Iowa had 46 state inspectors overseeing 414 nursing homes. Some states that have a comparable number of homes had twice that many inspectors on staff. Michigan, for example, had 93 inspectors for 433 homes, and North Carolina had 96 inspectors for 424 homes, compared to our 46. Only one state, South Carolina, had a worse ratio of inspectors per nursing home. For every inspector Iowa had on staff, it had nine care facilities to oversee. By comparison, Kansas and Nebraska each had 5.7 facilities per inspector. Missouri had 2.7, Minnesota 4.5, and Illinois had 2.2. The number of vacant positions for Iowa nursing home inspectors has increased over time. In 2002, there were no such vacancies. In 2022, 9% of the positions were vacant. Next, Iowa has incurred significant expense hiring contractors to handle inspections in place of state employees. The pay range for a registered nurse inspector working for the state of Iowa is $66,600 to $93,800. But Iowa has paid a private company, CertiServe, $33,000 per inspection for each facility with 96 to 174 beds. In addition, the company charged the state $40,950 for a single inspection of any nursing homes with 175 or more beds. There are only a few private companies qualified to handle care facility inspections, and several states have reported problems with the quality of the contractor's work. Iowa, however, has taken the opposite view, and according to Senate investigators, state officials have praised the brevity and conciseness of the published inspection reports produced by contractors, even instructing their own employee surveyors to emulate the writing style. And also, some of the companies that states have contracted to handle nursing home inspections have pre-existing contracts to provide consulting services for the nursing homes themselves. 
raising questions about conflicts of interest and the diligence of the hired contractors. Iowa officials told Senate investigators there is no mechanism to track consulting services provided by contractors, according to the report. State Senator Claire Selsey, a Des Moines Democrat, said the findings in the federal report may provide an answer as to why Larry Johnson, the director of the Iowa Department of Inspections, Appeals, and Licensing, has not answered some of her questions. She said this totally solves the mystery of the silence from Larry Johnson, who is completely stonewalling me every time I ask why the inspections are so far behind and why, basically, we aren't having more inspections, she said. The mystery is solved. We simply don't have enough people. In April, the Iowa Capital Dispatch reported that while the state had made significant headway in clearing up its backlog of uninvestigated complaints, the number of complaints had been increasing. At that time, there were 48 uninvestigated complaints that were at least 90 days old, as compared with 2022, when two dozen complaints had languished more than a year without being investigated. One of the delayed investigations pertained to Connie Roundy, who lived at Rose Vista Home in Woodbine in January of 2020, when her granddaughter complained to the state about issues at the home. The complaint was not investigated by the state until March of 2021, over a year later, six months after Roundy died. Celsi said legislators can try to address some aspects of the problem, but it could take years for Republican lawmakers to be persuaded that the issue needs to be addressed and reach a consensus as to what should be done. She said, we should make it mandatory that we have X number of inspectors for the number of nursing homes we have. Absolutely, she said. But I have a feeling that nursing homes are not on the governor's priority list. Celsi said that during the upcoming 2024 legislative session, the public will probably see a change in the way Democrats talk about this issue in the legislature, and that will put some pressure on Governor Reynolds to do something. Dean Lerner, who has served as Director of Inspections Department under Democratic Governor Chet Culver, said he's not surprised by the report's findings with regard to Iowa's oversight of care facilities. He went on to say this information tells the whole story of the Reynolds administration attitude toward the health, safety, and welfare of our most vulnerable seniors. He said, it's an abomination. Reynolds' office did not respond to a request for comment. Judith, back to you. DZ makes a winner out of a Shark Tank loser. This story by Kevin Baskins. The Shark Tank investors would not bite because Donnie McCall wouldn't budge. But McCall's invention for pickup trucks survives and thrives more than a decade later because a Des Moines Metro company made the promise the celebrity investors would not. It would make the product in America. Here's the previously little told story. McCall gained a share of fame on the legendary ABC Shark Tank show in 2012 when he pitched his invention called Invisirac, a rack for hauling ladders, light boats, and other hard-to-transport items that fits on pickup trucks and is retractable onto the bed rails when not in use. He was seeking $100,000 for 10% of the company, but was adamant that manufacturing of the product had to be done in the United States. 
The product piqued uh, the interest of the sharks, but in the end, the celebrities balked, saying long-term profitability would rest on production being done overseas, where manufacturing costs are lower and profit margins would be greater. McCall ultimately walked away, losing a deal with the sharks, but gaining widespread admiration around the country for sticking to his guns in insisting on domestic production of his invention. He had hoped a deal from the Sharks would help him set up production in his hometown of Sparta, North Carolina. Let's just say that a manufacturer in Asia could make that for $150 in quantities of, let's say, 1,000. Entrepreneur Kevin, Mr. Wonderful O'Leary, told McCall on the episode, that puts you in business right there, my friend, and yet you are saying no. It's not what I'm going to do with my company, McCall responded, effectively locking himself out of a deal. While famous sharks like O'Leary and Mark Cuban would not bite, help came soon after from the sharkless cornfields of Iowa in the form of Des Moines-based DZ Incorporated. For DZ, already uh, an established and renowned manufacturer of car light truck accessories, the product fit right smack in the middle of the company's wheelhouse. DZ acquired the worldwide exclusive licensing rights to manufacture and market the Invisirac and continues to sell it as made in its Des Moines metro factory. McCall said in a recent interview with the Des Moines Register that DZ officials contacted him soon after the show aired. When I looked at their DZ's array of products and the size and scope of their capabilities, it just makes sense to accept its offer, he said. McCall said he has a licensing deal with DZ that pays him a percentage based on sales. And he went on to say, more than 10 years later, we are still going strong. The exposure the product got from Shark Tank and the admiration McCall received from viewers for wanting the product manufactured in the United States has helped sales along the way, said Scott Moyer, director of marketing for DZ. Customers have not forgotten McCall's dedication to keeping the manufacturing in the United States as shown in customer reviews like this one on the DZ website. Awesome. Well worth the money. Kudos to Donnie McCall for not sending the manufacturing to China. Every time that episode gets aired somewhere, we can see a spark in sales, Moyer said. While pricing has naturally gone up over the years, the list price on the DZ site is $1,119.95, but it can be found at lower prices from other vendors, Moyer said sales are still very good. McCall, who calls himself an entrepreneurial patriot, is still involved in businesses in Sparta, including as president of Perrycraft Incorporated, which also produces car and truck accessories such as roof racks. I guess this whole story shifted from the Made in the USA theme to a Made in Iowa story, McCall said, and there will be an accompanying story as we go to Metro in Iowa. Thank you, Judith. All right, let's see. We have a front page story on the Metro in Iowa called Celebrating 75, John's Grocery in Iowa City, an anchor in a changing landscape. Berlin has spotus. Japanese citizens flock to its convenience stores, and New York City residents swear by their beloved bodegas. Iowa City has the longstanding John's Grocery. 
John's Grocery has been serving the Iowa City community for the last 75 years, a trusty mainstay in a forever-changing landscape. For most of the Iowa City residents, this local market has played a crucial role, whether for a college beer and fun and food run or during the holidays for forgotten ingredients. Doug Alberhaski is a seventh-generation Iowa City resident and the fourth-generation owner of John's Grocery, initially opened in 1948 by his grandparents, John and Irma Alberhaski. In a town known for emphasizing local, John's Grocery is the only independent grocery store in Iowa City. The Iowa Grocery Industry Association has 140 independent grocery members left, about one-tenth of their total membership base, Hy-Vee stores. John's Grocery has evolved with times, offering nearly anything a person needs from a neighborhood store. Alberhaski said, The fact that after 75 years in our family, we are not just surviving, we are thriving, it is a testament to our family. We've gotten, we've got not only four generations of our family here, but four generations of customers. So here are the origins of John's Grocery. John Alberhaski, a third-generation Iowa City resident, married his wife Irma on December 31, 1941, two weeks after the attack on Pearl Harbor. He was motivated to join the Navy and help fight in World War II. John sent money back to Irma and the family while he was stationed in Honolulu for three years. John returned to Iowa City when the war ended and immediately went to work for his brother Bernie at the Foxhead Tavern, Iowa City's oldest running bar. John realized providing for his soon-to-be family of five was going to be difficult working for someone else, inspiring him to open John's Grocery in 1948. The building at 401 East Market Street was a revolving door of business before the Alberhaskies took over, from a dry goods store to a firehouse, a bar, and even a perfume factory. The location was a lightning rod for activity. The storefront opened operated as four different grocery stores from 1930 to 1943 before John and Irma Alberhaskie purchased the building. When my grandparents opened, there were 28 other family-owned corner groceries in Iowa City, and we're the last one, said Doug. John's Grocery withstood the boom of one-stop shop supermarkets like Hy-Vee in the 1960s as a completely family-owned grocery retailer. As the community's needs changed, John's Grocery evolved, but at its core it remained a family affair. John and Irma's children started working at the store just as they could see over the counter. The familiar lineage includes Bill Alberhaskies, uh, who is Doug's father, the second-generation owner of John's Grocery, who passed away in 2022. The Alberhaskies each are motivated by an unofficial family motto, which is, you never stop working at John's. The days just get shorter. Doug credits luck for the lasting success of John's Grocery. He said, and it comes down to heart, and it comes down to family. At its core, John's Grocery is just a grocery store that happens to have the largest beer and spirits selection in Iowa. He said, we've always kept to our core of being a grocery store, we care, the care, we care for our neighbors where somebody can come in and get their cat food, frozen pizza, or ice cream. It's in our name, Doug said. At times, we struggle with that. We are more than a grocery store, but when it's in the name, how do people from out of town know that we are a world-class beer, wine, and liquor store? 
We're always educating customers on who we are. Doug started working full-time at John's Grocery in 1985, alongside his dad and grandpa. He worked his way into a managerial role by 1989, bolstered by a food store management degree from Kirkwood Community College. Much like his grandpa John, Doug was blessed with a stroke of luck, stepping in as manager, just as the microbrewery revolution arrived in Iowa City. John's Grocery has always been known as a go-to for beer, but when Doug took over, he capitalized on the boom of specialty beers. John's Grocery was one of the few places to get indie beers. It seemed like every week we were getting in 10 new beers, and I knew at that point that we needed more room, so we're trying to Jenga out the right space for what we have and started to move coolers, Doug said. In the mid-90s, when I really made my space here. By 2005, John's Grocery was named one of the top beer sellers in the U.S. by All About Beer magazine, which led John's to make space for the now iconic beer room. Iowa City has since blossomed into one of the most diverse beer cities in Iowa, with many different breweries opening in the last decades. John's Grocery stakes its claims as one of the earliest onto the craft beer scene, Doug said. I knew we did our job when Guinness started to be considered a mainstream beer on tap, he said. At John's Grocery Store, the shopping experience transcends the ordinary. The staff members are not just employees, but master storytellers, ready to guide you through a world of flavors and memories. They possess a knack for uncovering that elusive niche wine that instantly transports customers back to their days abroad. They help customers remember the beer that changed their lives. John's also may simply be the only place to find a favorite candy bar. Doug said, we're shopping experience. We have the expertise on beer, wine, and liquor to guide you to wherever you're looking, but we also have all the necessities that you need. Doug has a philanthropic tie with community organizations like Boy Scouts and is a lead organizer for festivals like Oktoberfest and Brewfest, giving back to the community tenfold. Doug said, knowing how hard it is to do business in this day and age, you know, I only support local business. The reason why small business works is because small business sports other small businesses. John's grocery growth and evolution were inevitable. Doug remembers John's Grocery as an old-fashioned grocery store with more than 100 different types of candy, a meat department, and a full-service deli. Irma Alberhaski's famous potato salad and deli sandwiches were favorites for many since 1950. Sadly, John's Grocery ceased its kitchen operation last year, ending a 70-year run. Doug said the closing down or deli was the hardest decision I've ever made. We had had such an amazing deli, and you know that that was such a huge part of who we were and what we did, but it wasn't viable anymore, and knowing that people were going to be disappointed was really hard. Sticking with what John is known for is essential, but so is innovating. The store remains committed to preserving its history, its historical allure, despite not being under the protective wing of the Historical Society. A significant milestone arrived in 2016 when the store underwent a rapid interior remodel within 24 hours. The renovation included updated floors, carefully selected to replicate the original flooring of the building, 
ensuring that the store retained its nostalgic charm. Doug's son, J.D. Alberheski, started working at John's Grocery at nine months old, starring in a local commercial spot. J.D. spent his summers and weekends in high school working at John's. He'll be shadowing his dad for the next decade before taking over full operations. He's learning the ropes through family osmosis, much like his dad did in the 1980s. J.D. will be the fourth generation to run the store and is currently learning the business and finding new ways to invigorate new shoppers. I went to school for marketing, and I want to start growing our social media footprint, J.D. said. It's been a good way to put our name out there even more than it already is because there are new students at the University of Iowa every year, and they have no idea what John's Grocery is or what we stand for. J.D. demonstrated a knack for entrepreneurship at a young age, helping create Soda Fest at the Northside Oktoberfest, an event John's Grocery has participated in since 2011. One of my dad's favorite stories is when I was standing in the back selling popcorn for Boy Scouts, and I asked someone if they want to buy popcorn, and they said, Sir, I don't have any money, J.D. said. I was 10 years old, and I said, It's okay. We have an ATM inside. Staying ahead of the trends is vital to the store's success. John's Grocery General Manager Chris Moore said he started 10 years ago as the beer manager and took over as general manager in 2021. Moore said Iowa is always two years behind the trends. We'll get tipped off once the hot thing and once the hot thing and try to work towards it. Like we had a high noon stocked for two or three years before it became a big deal. John's Grocery became one of the first retailers in, uh, to sell climbing kites, cannabis-infused sparkling water, a legal way to ingest THC in Iowa. The drink is popular at music festivals and is a current bestseller at John's. It's nice just to be like the first guy on the block to have the stuff that everyone wants, J.D. said. The idea of Iowa City without John's Grocery seems inconceivable to many, a sentiment deeply felt by the store's dedicated employees. The business is a testament to its integral place within the community. J.D. only realized the impact when he went to college. He said, all the friends that I've made, their parents say, oh, I used to stop at John's all the time. We love this store, he said. Like J.D., Moore is dedicated to John's for the long haul. He met his wife working at John's. The store's charm and shopping experience feel as if it can't be replicated, which keeps customers coming back. Moore said they went here in college, and so coming back here as an adult is kind of cool. This place does change regularly, and we've done a good job over the years of changing our business model to match what the consumer wants. When people haven't been here in 20 years, they can't believe what this place looks like because it's different than when they shopped here. They always come back, though, J.D. said. In the spirit of the holiday season and celebrating 75 years, John's Grocery is hosting an open house from 4 to 6 p.m. on December 6th. Local breweries will host tastings of beer, wine, and liquor, and a raffle will be held for top-shelf products. John's Grocery is open seven days a week, Sunday through Wednesday, from 8 a.m. to 10 p.m., and Thursday through Saturday from 8 a.m. to midnight. John's Grocery is open from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. on Thanksgiving Day.
Judith, back to you. This is the accompanying story about DZ that uh, we read earlier. Hardware firm DZ gets national award. This story by Kevin Baskins. Not every piece of hardware that comes into the Des Moines Metro's DZ Incorporated goes back out in the form of car and truck accessories. Some go into the trophy case. DZ, a maker of auto and truck accessories, recently brought home the Specialty Equipment Market Association's Manufacturer of the Year Award. SEMA boasts a membership of more than 7,000 businesses and organizations. Earlier this fall, DZ also took home a 2023 Economic Impact Award from the Greater Des Moines Partnership that honored it for significant contributions to the economic vitality of the region through capital investment, job creation, and facility expansion. The SEMA Award recognized DZ for its business practices, workforce excellence, employee well-being, protection of brand equity, quality of retail displays and packaging and innovation, said Scott Moyer, Director of Marketing for DZ. In addition to manufacturing many aftermarket truck and car accessories, DZ also makes accessories to original equipment manufacturer specifications for 17 automakers, including Ford, Stellantis, which was formerly Chrysler, General Motors, Honda, Nissan, Subaru, and Toyota, Moyer said. He went on to say there is a 99% chance you see a DZ product in your daily commute without knowing it was made right here in central Iowa. It may just be logoed with an automotive brand. Moyer said the Greater Des Moines Partnership Award recognized DZ's $15 million expansion in Pleasant Hill, where the company will be manufacturing body structures for GM's Bright Drop Zevo electric vans that will begin joining delivery fleets at FedEx and Walmart starting in 2024. The expansion will add an additional 100 skilled jobs throughout 2024 and 2025. Overall, DZ has sales of more than $350 million a year globally. The company operates out of eight buildings scattered across the north and east metro, housing over one million square feet for manufacturing, packaging, warehousing, and shipping, with its main plant on Northeast 58th Street in Sailor Township. The company has about 1,100 employees and has been in the truck accessory um, market since 1977. DC's product lines include sidesteps, toolboxes, transfer tanks, cab racks, roof rails, truck bed accessories, and other products. Thank you, Judith. All right, Planned Parenthood workers to picket as contract talks falter. This is from Michaela Ram of Des Moines Register. Planned Parenthood workers in Des Moines will picket this weekend as part of a multi-state union demonstration over labor concerns as they attempt to negotiate contract with their employer. Unionized Planned Parenthood north-central states from Iowa, Minnesota, and Nebraska will picket outside clinics Tuesday morning to call for a contract that meets workers' demands, including increased wages and lower health insurance premiums. In addition, union officials say they are drawing attention to intimidation and unfair labor practices faced by the bargaining team from the nonprofit health care provider. 
A demonstration will take place in Des Moines on Tuesday outside the Susan Knapp Health Center from 7.30 in the morning to 8.30 before patients arrive for appointments. The demonstration is not a strike and will not affect patient care on Tuesday, organizers said. Here's everything you need to know about Tuesday's picket. Why the union? Why has the union not reached an agreement with Planned Parenthood? In July 2022, more than 400 frontline health care workers at Planned Parenthood North Central States voted to form a union with SEIU Healthcare in Minnesota and Iowa. The unionized group covers five states, Iowa, Minnesota, Nebraska, North Dakota, and South Dakota. Though the union began bargaining with Planned Parenthood in October of 2022, the two sides can't agree on a contract. They have met 32 times in the past 13 months and have reached tentative agreements in some areas, including over certain benefits, work hours and employee schedules, Planned Parenthood uh, officials said. As we work to reach agreement on remaining items, Planned Parenthood North Central States is committed to creating a robust and competitive benefits package that will attract and retain staff within a structure that is equitable and sustainable, said Molly Gage, Vice President of Human Resources at Planned Parenthood North Central States. The union has chosen to picket because Planned Parenthood has failed to adequately meet their demands for increased wages for all staff, said Ashley Schmidt, who is a training and developmental specialist for Planned Parenthood and a member of the union's bargaining team. Many clinics are short-staffed, which has created high turnover rates and forced current employees to work long hours with few breaks, she said. In addition, their pay has not kept up with rising costs, the union argues. Schmidt said Planned Parenthood workers' health insurance costs will increase 12% next year, but that the nonprofit has only offered a 1% raise as part of negotiations. They are exploiting our passion for this work, and we cannot pay bills with a mission statement, Schmidt said. Still, Planned Parenthood officials say they are optimistic they can reach an initial contract in the near future. So why are union workers demonstrating over unfair labor practices? Union officials say demonstrations are also taking place Tuesday to raise public awareness of how Planned Parenthood North Central States is intimidating the 14 members of the union's bargaining team. Union officials said uh, Planned Parenthood leadership had illegally surveyed, surveilled the bargaining team by obtaining a copy of a private signal chat among the members last March. As a result, one member, Grace Larson, an LPN, was fired, they say. All other members received a final written warning on their employee records, meaning they could be fired for any infraction, Schmidt said. Those employees have not been given a reason why they were disciplined. SEIU Healthcare Minnesota and Iowa alleges bargaining team members faced disciplinary actions as part of Planned Parenthood's union-busting efforts. The organization has filed charges against Planned Parenthood with the National Labor Relations Board. Planned Parenthood officials have pushed back on those allegations, pointing out that a formal resolution to one of the union's complaints made it clear that the basis for the discipline of all bargaining team members was misconduct. However, the charges regarding Larson's abrupt termination are still pending with the board. Gage said the union, as a participant, 
agreed to publicly apologize in June of this year for their failure to take action to prevent this misconduct. Gage went on, We continue to remain committed to the formal complaint process with the NLRB as they investigate the unfair labor practice complaint that related to Grace Larson's termination. Gage said Planned Parenthood is committed to working in good faith with union members throughout the negotiation process. Gage said PPNCS is not, has not, and will not participate in any union-busting activities. No staff have been disciplined or fired by PPNCS for union organizing. However, unions are not designed to be a shield for misconduct. We remain committed to bargaining in good faith to reach a fair and balanced contract for our unionized employees. So could unionized workers go on strike? Union members are reluctant to strike for fear of harming patient care, Schmidt said. However, depending on how Wednesday's bargaining session goes, that could be a possibility, she said. While we do have the votes to go to a formal strike, the realization is that we're Planned Parenthood. Without us, people will go without life-saving health care, said Schmidt. So where will the pickets happen? Demonstrations will be taking place at just a few major clinics across Iowa, Nebraska, and Minnesota. All demonstrations will happen before the clinics open in order to avoid disruptions to patient care, union members say. The Susan Knapp Health Center will be the only Planned Parenthood clinic in Iowa participating in the demonstration on Tuesday. Other pickets will take place Tuesday morning at clinics in Omaha, Nebraska, and in Minneapolis and St. Paul, Minnesota. Judith. Unity Point Health has begun demolition. This story by Addison Lathers. Two neighboring downtown buildings will soon be gone as Unity Point Health Center prepares to clear the properties for redevelopment. Demolition of the former Care Inn, 1300 Woodland Avenue, began earlier this month. The process of clearing the site will continue through the end of the year, according to Unity Point spokesperson Mark Tokshak. Site prep is underway at the Woodland Center, 1313 High Street, which faces the Wellmark Blue Cross and Blue Shield Insurance Building. Toshek said the health care provider has no concrete plans for how the space will be used going forward. Uh, he went on to say, Toshek uh, said uh, the demolition is part of Unity Point Health Des Moines commitment to providing the best possible health care services to our community, and that includes preparing our campus for future growth, being a good neighbor, and keeping our environment beautiful and safe. The Woodland Center has been vacant since 2012. That building once was home to several hospital departments, including human resources, advocacy, and outreach, IT, and telecommunications. Since 1990, the Care Inn, most recently called the In-Towner Apartments, provided housing options for some of Unity Point's medical students, residents, patients, and families. It closed in 2022. Both reinforced concrete buildings were constructed in 1970. The Polk County Assessor values the Woodland Center at $5 million and the 83-unit In-Tower at $7 million. The land is worth more than $1 million combined. Doesn't seem right. Uh, the properties are both officially owned by the Iowa Methodist Medical Center, 
Unity Point Health formed in 1993 when Iowa Methodist Hospital and Iowa Lutheran Hospital merged to form Iowa Health System, renamed Unity Point in 2013. Thank you, Judith. Okay, a couple of brief articles on page three of the main section. The East Mixmaster ramps near Ankeny will close this week. And here's where to detour. So if you're planning a trip to Ankeny, you might want to add a few minutes to your schedule. Um, this is from Noel Alvitz Grande. Overnight construction at the East Mixmaster near Ankeny may slow down traffic soon. Crews will place beams for the new bridge at the Interstate 3580-235 interchange, according to an Iowa Department of Transportation news release. This will close the ramp from westbound I-80 to westbound I-235 and the loop from eastbound I-235 to westbound I-80 from 11 p.m. to 5 a.m. on November 30th. The detour will take drivers north on I-35 to the interchange at Corporate Woods Drive and then back south to connect to westbound I-80 or I-235. The DOT is building a flyover bridge that will more directly connect northbound I-80 and eastbound 3580. It also is replacing two ramps in the interchange. For updates, you can visit 511ia.org or call 511 while in Iowa. And then a second article, Fort Dodge officer shoots three biting dogs. This is from Jose Mendiola, the Des Moines Register. A Fort Dodge officer fatally shot three dogs after they attacked a woman Friday morning, seriously injuring her, the city's police chief says. Police were dispatched to the 800 block of 16th Street after receiving a call about someone yelling for help, said Chief Dennis Quinn in a prepared statement. A woman was being attacked by three dogs when an officer arrived. He said the officer attempted to scare the dogs away to stop them from attacking the woman, but the dogs would not stop, Quinn said. The officer shot all three dogs multiple times to stop the attack, killing them, he said. The woman was transported to Unity Point Health, Trinity Regional Medical Center at 802 Kenyon Road in Fort Dodge, and then taken by life flight to Iowa Methodist Medical Center in Des Moines, Quinn said. The shooting is under investigation, and the woman's name will not be released, said Quinn. Man arrested and charged in deadly Thanksgiving crash. This story by Noel Alves Grancy. A Des Moines man has been arrested and charged in the deadly crash Thanksgiving morning that killed 66-year-old Connie Allison. Sean Michael Bowersock, 46, has been charged with homicide by vehicle, eluding possession of a controlled substance, driving while license suspended, fraudulent use of registration, and not having insurance. Allison was a passenger in Bowersock's vehicle when police attempted to pull it over at 1.38 a.m. after seeing a fraudulent license plate near Southeast 5th Street and Hughes Avenue, according to a news release from Des Moines Police Department. Bowersock sped away from the officer and failed to turn, according to police. The car left the road and crashed in a ditch south of Emma Avenue. Despite life-saving efforts, Allison later died. Bowersock, who had a felony arrest warrant, was in serious condition and guarded while in the hospital, the release said. Des Moines police are investigating the 17th traffic-related fatality this year.
Thank you, Judith. I'm going to move over to Nation and World Extra and see if I can find a little shorter article for right now. This is on page 5 NN of Nation and World Extra. Woman uh, sues police for failing to report taser shock. This is from Colleen Slavin of the Associated Press out of Denver. A woman who was shocked in the back with a taser while lying on the ground in Pueblo, Colorado last year is suing the police officer who stunned her and the, and the city's police chief, accusing the police department of failing to report excessive force by the officer to state regulators. The federal lawsuit filed Sunday by Christy Gonzalez, who was suspected of stealing a vehicle, says the police department found Corporal Benny Villanueva used excessive force against Gonzalez and another person several weeks later. However, it says the agency withheld the information from a state board that oversees who is qualified to serve in law enforcement. If it had been reported, Villanueva would have lost his certification to work as a police officer for at least a year, the lawsuit said. Gonzalez was suspected of stealing a truck in February of 2022 and didn't stop for Villanueva, according to police investigation. Eventually, the vehicle ran out of gas, according to the lawsuit. After she got out of the truck, Villanueva pulled up and ordered her to get onto the ground, according to body camera footage released by Gonzalez's lawyer. After another officer grabbed one of her arms, she got down on her knees and then appeared to be pushed to the ground when Villanueva deployed his taser into her back. According to the lawsuit, Gonzalez was hit with two probes in the small of her back near her spine. It says she continues to have numbness and difficulty using her right hand since the incident. Telephone messages left for Pueblo Police Chief Chris Noller and the city's police union were not immediately returned Monday. Villanueva could not immediately be located for comment. After seeing the video of Gonzalez's arrest, the assistant district attorney prosecuting the vehicle theft filed an excessive force complaint, prompting an internal police investigation, according to the lawsuit. After the investigation, Noller issued a letter of reprimand against Villanueva for his conduct in the Gonzalez case, as well as for violating department policies in two other cases. In the letter, provided by Gonzalez's lawyer, Kevin Mayer, Noller said Villanueva appears to use the taser on Gonzalez for no apparent reason, as in quotes. However, he also said that the use of the taser appeared to be a result of your reaction to a highly stressful call for service after having been away from patrol duty work for several years. In a second case, Nueller said Villanueva deployed his taser on a suspect a second time, apparently accidentally while attempting to issue a warning arc to get the suspect to comply. In a third case cited in the letter, Villanueva threatened to use a taser on a suspect in custody who was not cooperating with medical personnel, but he did not end up deploying it. Each year, police departments are required to report to Colorado's Peace Officer Standards and Training Board whether their officers have had any disqualifying incidents, including a finding of excessive force, that would disqualify them from being certified to work as police officers in that state, according to the lawsuit. 
It claims the Pueblo Police Department did not report any such incidents for any of its officers in 2022. The Pueblo Police Department lied to the post board, just plain and simple, said Mayor. Judith. Texas border crossing in Eagle Pass closed to vehicles. This story released by the Associated Press with the dateline of Phoenix, Arizona. A Texas border crossing was closed to vehicles Monday, and traffic at an Arizona crossing was limited to shift more resources to illegal entries, U.S. authorities said, in the latest sign of how fast-changing migration uh, routes, uh, or routes are challenging the government to keep up. Customs and Border Protection said it was closing one of two bridges to vehicles in Eagle Pass, Texas, a town of about 30,000 people that, for a while last year, was the busiest corridor for illegal crossings. The agency is also reducing vehicle entries in Lukeville, Arizona, a remote desert crossing that has become a major migration route in recent months. Customs and Border Protection said in a statement, the United States is continuing to see increased levels of migrant encounters at the southwest border, fueled by smugglers peddling disinformation to prey on vulnerable individuals and encourage migration. As we respond with additional resources and apply consequences for unlawful entry, the migration trends shift as well. Lukeville lies in the Border Patrol's Tucson sector, which was the busiest of nine along the United States-Mexico border uh, by far in October. John Modlin, the sector chief, said Sunday that all sector social media accounts would be temporarily reduced in response to the ongoing migration surge. Moden wrote on X, the platform uh, formerly called Twitter, at this time, all available personnel are needed to address the unprecedented flow. The social media team will return once the situation permits. He um, returned a short time later to apologize for the hastily written statement and pledge transparency. Staffing cuts to legal trade and travel are the latest response to demands for processing people who cross the border illegally, often to seek asylum. While arrest for illegal crossing fell in October, September was the second highest month on record. And I can show you one more picture here. Um, it's a, a little picture of Tom Wingo. He is a, of Samaritans Without Borders, and he is walking on the Roosevelt easement, picking up trash along the border fence as a United States Customs and Border Protectional Agent patrols the area August 29 near Lukeville, Arizona. Thank you, Judith. Okay, a brief article. Remains of World War II heavy bomber gunner as identified. This is out of Washington. A U.S. Army Air Force gunner's remains have been accounted for nearly eight decades after the heavy bomber he was flying was shot down over France during World War II. Staff Sergeant Franklin P. Hall, age 21, of Leesburg, Florida, was identified in July by scientists who used anthropological and DNA analysis, the defense POW MIA accounting agency said. Hall was assigned to the 66th Bombardment Squadron, 44th Bombardment Group, in the European Theater in January of 1944. He was a left-waist gunner on a B-24D Liberator called Queen Marlene when it was attacked by German air forces near Aiken, Aramacourt, France. 
Ongoing research into soldiers missing from combat around there eventually led to the discovery of two sets of remains buried in Normandy American Cemetery, an American Battle Monuments Commission site. The remains were distant in 2018. The one set was identified.